All right, everybody, don't panic, but this week we had a little bit of an audio problem with the show. You'll notice that the audio quality is not quite what it normally is for about the first half of the show, but it gets better. Don't worry. Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. I'm super excited that it's a little bit colder this week. You know, it's t-shirt weather instead of just shorts weather, finally. Well, we've had, uh, you know, frost on the cars a couple of days this week and uh, some pretty cold, miserable rain all day today. Oh, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's well, you'll, you'll get your turn, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, that is true. We had a good thunderstorm roll in um, bright and early this morning, so that was always fun. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited for fall. It's obviously one of my favorite times of the year. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, your favorite season, pumpkin spice latte season, right? Ah, it's so true. <laughs> I've ingested so much of that crap. It's ridiculous, but I can't help myself. And in fact, my friend <laughs> Stacy bought me pumpkin spice latte m&ms today so yep wow <laughs> <laughs> uh what are you up to oh you know just been doing uh lots of random things uh, unfortunately dealing with a what looks like it's going to turn out to be a hardware failure on my main computer so this is why i always preach about backups <laughs> um having I mean, them really saved me <laughs> that's a mac right you have a hardware failure on your Mac? I just want to get that cleared up. Uh, yes, it is a hardware failure, I think, Okay. on a Mac. Okay. I'm going to but... blame it on the drive manufacturer, which is not Mac, but, you know. Mm, mm, sure. Uh, but since you listened to episode whatever it was and you have 5,000 backups of everything, I'm sure you're sitting much prettier than most normal people would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's still inconvenient, but having the backups is really... Uh, saved me quite a bit uh, so but yeah other than that just uh playing if people have been watching on twitter uh, i need a thermal chamber to do some calibration of some sensors with temperature so i've been modifying a reptile egg incubator all week to do that it's actually sitting here by me now running uh, so when you first told me about this i got really excited because you know i used to uh, babysit these <laughs> They're actually uh, some of our meteorology professors. I babysit their chameleons, and I used to hatch little eggs for them. And I got excited until you said you were just doing science on it. <laughs> yes, just doing, just doing some science with it. <laughs> Not life sciences, because baby chameleons are really cute. If you've never seen one, a little alien looking, but yeah. Well, I suppose this could still work uh, to hatch eggs, though right now, you know, as soon as I made sure it worked, I took a whole saw to the side so I could be sure to get my <laughs> cabling in and out. Yeah, probably not the best. <laughs> Hurt your yeah. resale value in the uh, reptilian department. But. <laughs> but, well, before we go on to today's topic, uh, we actually had some listener feedback. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we now know that there are at least, you know, four people out there. Ex so Exactly. Hello. And <laughs> so this was from listener Mark, who sent in a really great fun paper that we're going to get to in a couple of weeks that uh, he was reminded of because I was talking about pumpkin chunkin' last week. And this is all about <laughs> the physics of trebuchets. 
Uh, yeah, and he also gave us a link to this awesome webpage about uh, the physics of trebuchets, and it was a spectacular time waste. It was awesome. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. So thanks, Mark, for the feedback, and we'll get to your fun paper here in just a couple of weeks. We have one other listener fun paper that we've been promising for a long time that we're going to do next week. <laughs> that's right. We were just waiting for the first snowfall, and since we've got it, we're going to do the snow paper. So that's coming up. Hang on there. Right. <laughs> but so, Shannon, as we're going into uh, the winter months and slowly going out of pumpkin spice latte season. <laughs> so sad. We've been hearing a lot about El Nino, or, you know, there's all kinds of skits that I know you really enjoy about it. <laughs> so El Nino is Spanish for the Nino. <laughs> if you're old there's enough, There's a link hopefully... in the show notes if you uh, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't recognize that reference. Exactly. I'm just going to let that hang out there. Uh, maybe some of our listeners aren't old enough to get that, but... I hope they are. Um, and I feel like I've been talking about El Nino a whole ton lately, like just in general and also in both of my classes. Because um, like you said, we're going into a really strong El Nino this year. Some people have called it a Godzilla El Nino. And so it's pretty interesting what El Nino is and why it happens. Right. And it really affects uh, the weather over an incredibly broad area. And we're already seeing some of the effects of it, right? Uh, right, exactly. So you've heard us complain, well, you've heard me complain about the weather on my field trips last week where it was raining in the desert and it never happens. And, um, you know, we're supposed to get a lot of rain here in Oklahoma. We kind of had a rainy summer too. And a lot of these big weather makers are really affected by El Nino. So I thought maybe that, especially in this really strong El Nino year, we should tell people what it is because you hear a lot about it, but don't know much about why it happens. Yeah, and really it's a non-straightforward system, right? Because our climate depends on everything. It's everything on Earth is connected. And we're dealing with, uh, in this case, mostly water surface interaction, right? Right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I say we're going to explain why it happens, but that's not true, because actually we don't know why it happens. We're just going to tell you what it is. Um, and it starts off, the thing that most people think about is with sea surface temperatures. Um, but we're going to get into what exactly that is here in a minute. Um, the history of El Nino is kind of cool. It's originally called El Nino de Navidad, and it means the Christ child. And it was named as far back as the 1600s, it was named this, by Peruvian fishermen because that area off the coast of Peru and Ecuador is where, during an El Nino, you get extremely warm water temperatures. And it happened in December, hence the name. Right. Now, there's also a counterpart to El Nino that you hear a lot about as well, though we're not going to talk about it so much on this show, but that's La Nina, right? <laughs> Exactly. So this warm water that's off of the eastern equatorial Pacific is El Nino. And then La Nina, obviously named the opposite, the little girl, is uh, when you get cold phase. So cold water, cold atmosphere over the same area. So El Nino and La Nina together are often called ENSO. So that's El Nino Southern Oscillation. So you've got warm water or cold water, and then this thing called the Southern Oscillation. 
Yeah, and you know Noah even has an Inso blog that you can follow. And <laughs> yes, it's actually learn really all cool. about what's going on. I got a lot of info from that blog um, because Inso is a really, like John just said, climate is very complex, and the coupling of the water temperatures and the air temperatures that make up Inso is not very predictable. It is periodic, though. Sort of periodic. okay yeah that's right i was waiting for you to say that um so we can't really predict them um but every two to seven ish years we will have one of these el nino or la nina cycles um el nino is actually occurs more frequently than la nina and what we're looking at in these cycles that usually last nine to twelve months but sometimes more than a couple of years um is we're looking very specifically at the water temperatures between the international dateline and about 120 degrees west longitude. So what we're going to call from here on the equatorial eastern Pacific. Right. And if you stand back and look at a graph of these water surface temperatures or sea surface temperatures, or SSTs as we'll probably end up referring to them, uh, if you stand back really far and you coat the positive anomalies and uh, a red shade, the negative anomalies, and a blue shade, and squint your eyes, you do see something that looks kind of like a sine wave with a little bit more red than blue. Yes, exactly. It's not, it's a stretchy-ish sine wave. <laughs> um, because, like I said, we don't... Is that a technical term? Stretchy-ish? Of course it is. <laughs> uh, it's in a calculus that's too advanced for you. I'm sorry. Uh, you'll get to it eventually. Um, <laughs> so the stretchiest sine wave... We don't know why it happens, what the conditions are that spur either an El Nino or a La Nina to occur. That's pretty strange to me. Yeah, but there's evidence that's gone on for quite a while, right? Right. Um, so we can track these with climate proxies back through ice cores, so thousands of years. I read some info that said millions of years. I didn't actually corroborate that but through tree rings and other climate proxies this el nino la nina cycle has been going on for a very long time so some kind of interaction within that very complex climate cycle spurs these things to occur and right now we're getting ready to go into a really big one so we've talked about sea surface temperature and how important it is but i thought before we go any further with that we should talk about measuring sea surface temperature because we know that I'm all about how we measure things. And it's not necessarily straightforward because we're looking at tiny changes, as we'll find out. Exactly. Um, the When you're actually measuring the southern oscillation, it's a lot more straightforward, the measurement. I got into that one because it's pretty easy. But um, the sea surface temperatures are measured by a whole bunch of different things, right? Buoys, satellites. Yeah, and so the buoys, sometimes they have a string of sensors under them, but most of the time you're measuring something like the temperature a meter below the actual sea surface. And that doesn't sound like much, but that's actually quite a bit. And we have to correct for that when we're comparing it to satellite measurements of actual sea surface temperature. Because if you have an infrared instrument on a satellite, you see about the top 20 microns. (laughs) of water temperature (laughs) and that's not a lot that's really not a lot and if you're looking at something in the microwave wavelengths um, 
you see a little bit deeper than that, but you're talking about a few millimeters. At, so a couple orders of magnitude, right? But, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is still several orders of magnitude away from the buoys. Yes. Uh, but so the catch is buoys are expensive. Buoys fail. Uh, so we don't want to have them everywhere. It's too much. Infrared satellites we've had for a long time, but clouds are a problem because we can't, can't see through clouds with the infrared. Uh, this is where microwave has really come in and helped because with microwave satellites, we can shoot right through the clouds, but nothing comes for free. So we're using <laughs> anywhere between four and 11 gigahertz generally to do this, um, microwave transmitters and receivers. And you're, they're pretty sensitive to the sea surface temperature, but they're also sensitive to things like how rough the sea surface is, how much churn there is, atmospheric temperature and moisture in the path from the satellite to the ground and back. Uh, so what they end up doing is shooting uh, multiple different frequencies of microwaves with different polarizations, uh, actually kind of similar to what I talked about on the orbital mechanics with measuring soil moisture, uh, but using some different algorithms and a little bit different band, you can get back the actual brightness temperature of the sea surface, canceling out roughness and atmospheric effects. It's really interesting how they do this, and we could probably do an entire show on it. Oh, yeah, I think we could. Um, dual, pole dual pole radar has done an awful lot for a lot of different things, not just satellite, but here on the ground as well. Um, it's, it's an interesting or it's an important point to point out because what we're looking at is a huge area of the Pacific. And so, you know, just like John said, there's not a lot of buoys out there because they're super expensive. So satellites, the best aerial bang for your buck. But when we're talking about warming of the sea, you can't just look at the top 20 microns and say, oh, we've warmed up. So now we've got this El Nino. So it makes forecasting a lot harder, which we'll talk about a little later in the show. Right. And when you're looking a meter down, you're going to see something different than what the satellites see. So there is a whole little cottage industry around correcting all of these data sets to make cohesive global maps. And it's gotten really, really good when you look at these sea surface temperature maps that are published pretty frequently now. Uh, yes. And we've got a link in the show notes to one of these, um, the Climate Prediction Center's sort of outlooks for El Nino that they put out periodically. And I was really impressed at the actual amount of data that they have to accurately predict this because obviously prediction is awful hard for us meteorologists. <laughs> so yes. any, the more data, the better, <laughs> basically. But I mean, that's what we're looking at. So we monitor these sea surface temperatures and that's one of the parameters that these forecasters, uh, especially at the Climate Prediction Center, are looking at when they're trying to see whether any given year will be an El Nino or La Nina event. And, I mean, this isn't just one single thing. We don't say, hey, we've got sea surface temperature rise, it's El Nino. There are lots of different flavors of El Nino. I have a link to um, a paper in, in the show notes that talks about this because you can have weak El Ninos and strong El Ninos. Um, but to officially have an El Nino... You have to have sea surface temperatures elevated over a specific area, and these are the Nino areas, and it's right around the equator, starting from Nino 1 and 2 areas, which are west coast of South America, right off Ecuador and Peru, and then they stretch along the equator westward towards Papua New Guinea and Indonesia. And so the temperatures that you see with the satellites and the buoy networks in this area um, 
is what determines whether we're having an El Nino or La Nina. Right. And then there's even other areas, right? So the areas three and four, and then some little subdivisions of those as well. Right. So you've got three, 3.4, oddly enough, and four, which is over Indonesia. Um, so that big stretch of the equatorial Pacific is what we're looking at. When we have a strong El Nino, uh, the temperatures are three degrees C or more above normal. And like we said, this is about, you know, a couple of meters down. And then La Nina's are about the same thing, one to three degrees below normal. And it absolutely amazes me every time that we talk about something like this. Three degrees is not much, and that's a strong El Nino. Exactly. I'm always surprised by that, too, because it actually changes the weather in Oklahoma so much. Um, we're actually not very susceptible to weak or moderate El Ninos, but strong El Ninos can really mean a big difference. In 1998, we had a really strong El Nino and I remember they talked about it on the news. That was my first year in meteorology, so I was really excited about it. And um, it had a big effect. And it's three degrees. I mean, it's nothing, but it just shows what tiny perturbations can do, especially when you couple it with the southern oscillation and what that means for the weather. Granted, we're talking about three degrees for a lot of water. Right. And we know it's hard to change the temperature of water. <laughs> exactly. So if you're talking about a meter, you know, that's what we're measuring under a buoy. I mean, that's not a cubic meter of water. It's that whole <laughs> equatorial Pacific. So right. quite a lot of water. Um, and this has a seasonal, a seasonal influence too, right? So it happens during pumpkin spice latte season and then it goes into... <laughs> Um, but it is. So June through August are when these temperature elevations actually start to occur. And that's when we start to perk up and say, oh, looks like El Nino or La Nina. And the effects are most strongly felt, the weather effects, in North America during December through April time period. Um, usually they then start to decay as you go into the spring and summer of the next year. But like we said earlier, sometimes they stick around for a while, as much as two years. Yeah, and so, I mean, we're already seeing effects now. It's a little bit before December, but I would say that the biggest effects from this year's El Nino, uh, the Godzilla El Nino, are still yet to come, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true, which is good and bad news, but we'll go over that. Who gets the good news and who gets the bad news? So when we have these warming of the sea surface temperatures in the eastern equatorial Pacific, that corresponds to a negative phase in the southern oscillation, and... Being the weather weenies that we are, um, I'm sure we could talk about the Southern Oscillation for a whole nother show, uh, but we'll just briefly mention it here because you hear the word ENSO so much, and that's what it stands for. And the Southern Oscillation is just a pressure perturbation that occurs in correspondence to the sea surface temperature. Right, and so there's this official monitoring uh, in Tahiti, right, that talks about what the pressure is and where we are in the Southern Oscillation. And just the opposite of what you said is what happens in La Nina. So we're looking for abnormally high pressures in the Eastern Equatorial Pacific. Right, so there's two stations, Tahiti and in Darwin, Australia. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and those are the pressure stations that we look for, right? So if we get abnormally low in Tahiti, you get abnormally high in Darwin, right by Indonesia, and that is El Nino year. Um, 
these perturbations, you know, couple with that sea surface temperature because you can't take out that interaction, right? It's a constant interaction, even though with all kinds of models, we try to model just the atmosphere or just the ocean because the actual interaction is just too complicated for us to understand. Uh, we've got a link in the show notes um, to that ENSO blog we were talking about and also um, some of these products, forecast products from the Climate Prediction Center dealing with, you know, the yearly ENSOs and what they look like. But I think maybe we should move forward and talk about what is what does this mean? So that's a lot of what El Nino is, but what does it mean for us here in North America? Because we're really self-centered and we want to talk about us. Right. Well, for us and very happily uh, for me especially, that means above normal winter temperatures. <laughs> You weenie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, I do remember when I was an undergrad in meteorology at OU, our t-shirt did say, you can go to Penn State and shovel snow or go to OU and chase tornadoes, your choice. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. But yeah, so we're mainly talking about above normal temperatures for you know, West Central Canada, the Pacific Northwest, and more the Western U.S., right? Uh, right, exactly. Um, but it's not just temperature, it's about precip too, as we alluded to already. And unfortunately, it's drier than normal in the Pacific Northwest during El Nino years. And that sucks because they're in a really bad drought as it is. Yeah. And on the other side of that, it means that it's wetter in like the southeast and east. Uh, exactly. And so being in the middle, you get drier stuff in the Pacific Northwest and also in the Ohio River Valley, wetter stuff in the Southeast. Um, it's kind of up in the air for like Oklahoma and Texas and parts of the Southwest. So I've seen a lot of data from OCS that talks about what does El Nino mean for us and our neighbors here in Oklahoma. So check out their website um, because the they talk a lot about this. Weak El Ninos, moderate El Ninos, so, you know, two degrees C doesn't do a lot here. We could have dry, we could have wet, we could have warm, we could have cold, doesn't matter. But strong El Ninos really tend to make us partially warmer, but a lot wetter, which is a big deal for us because we've also been in a drought for the past four years. Um, so it's good news for us, bad news for the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, absolutely. And quantifying how strong the El Nino is turns out to be a really tricky thing because it turns out publishing a paper and saying it's a Godzilla El Nino doesn't tend to fly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, when I started delving into the literature to look into, you know, what makes an El Nino, I found a whole bunch of different papers. Um, there's a whole bunch of El Nino indices that people are putting forth saying that, yes, sea surface temperature is important, but there's this other parameter, and we all fight about what these other parameters are. And so, yes, quantifying strong is hard to do. But we've had very elevated temperatures for quite a while, and so that's why forecasters are saying 95% chance of a strong El Nino this year. Yeah, I mean, you said in the neighborhood of three Celsius was a strong El Nino generally. And right now the Pacific is two and a half to three degrees normal, warmer than normal. Right, and it has been for the past several months. Um, another thing that they look at, and I think this is kind of neat to think about being a geologist, uh, we talk about the thermocline in the ocean, right? So it's that that area where you've got a 20 degree C temp. Um, 
It's just like looking at an isotherm in the atmosphere, right? It's just an isotherm in the ocean. And they look at where that is in the water column and where it moves. And so that thermocline has moved down. It's a negative departure of its slope. And that suggests that the column of really warm water is actually quite large, bigger than, you know, just that first couple of millimeters has warmed up, but it's a large column of water. And so that sort of yields itself to a strong El Nino too. Yeah. And I mean, we're already seeing some of these consequences. We've alluded to this, but there have been some really crazy storms already this year. Uh, yeah, and one of them happened this week, right? Yeah, actually, uh, we didn't talk about it last week, and now it's not even in the news, really. Uh, it happened in the cycle of our one-week show, uh, but that was Hurricane Patricia, and that was a huge storm. I don't know if you were watching the uh, photos that were getting tweeted down from the International Space Station or not, but they were stunning. Oh, well, of course I was. <laughs> um, yeah, silly question. They... Exactly. (laughs) Um, They were. That was a huge storm. And what was remarkable about it was how quick it gained in intensity, right? And we think about where the storm was, and it's really close to the wheelhouse of that warm water um, in the eastern equatorial Pacific. And warm water is one of the three main ingredients for hurricanes, right? Warm water, uh, disturbance, and uh, low upper-level wind speeds. And so that combo, especially these really warm waters, made for Patricia, which was one of the strongest hurricanes we've ever recorded in that area. Yeah, I mean, it has the record lowest pressure for the Western Hemisphere at 879 millibars and one-minute sustained winds of 200 miles an hour or 325 kilometers an hour for folks that uh, think in metric. (laughs) Yes, as we all all should. Um, Yeah, and it was quick. You know, it came on shore really quick and it died really quick, too. Um, It seemed like it was just a couple of days in the news and then it was gone. Um, But those weren't the only ones. There were those. I don't know if you remember this back in August, those three hurricanes that were all cat three or greater that were surrounding Hawaii. Yes. And (laughs) that picture, it reminds me of the picture. I showed this picture in class, and we linked it in the show notes as well. It reminds me of the picture in The Day After Tomorrow, that movie where they've got all the hurricanes across the globe. (laughs) Like, it looks just like it. I actually showed that picture next to this actual satellite picture of these three huge hurricanes and a tropical depression in the picture. And they look the same. I thought that was pretty funny, but... You know, I don't know if that was a consequence of it, but it was certainly a weird weather event as well. Yeah, you know, and I was actually pretty disappointed uh, with the news coverage of Patricia because I felt like the meteorologist got a really bad rap for, according to the news, hyping it up. It was a Category 5 storm with these huge winds, and then it came on shore and died really quickly, as you said. Uh, But I think that was more a failure of news outlets, uh, not a failure of science uh, or the meteorologist, right? (laughs) Yep, yep, I agree. I think I think we had a lot of actual, you know, warnings and everything on it. I think it was just a media issue as well. Um, you know, we knew it was coming. I think they had a pretty good idea of how strong it was going to develop. So I mean, it's really interesting. Yeah, and it, and it pushed three hundred million dollars, U.S. dollars, in damage. We think uh, so. That's not an insignificant storm. So I looked into the uh, literature as well to talk about hurricanes. That's what we're going to be talking about and. Um, my catastrophic sedimentation class too. 
and El Nino has a different effect on Atlantic hurricanes. And it's actually quite a, quite a strong correlation that during El Nino years, it usually means much lower chances of Atlantic hurricane development and of landfall. Hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. Yeah. If you've got really hot water, you're going to have to balance that out with some colder water somewhere else, right? Yeah, that's fascinating, though. That, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, we did have a mm-hmm. super strong El Nino back in what, the late 90s. Yeah, yeah, it was around 98. Yeah. And they had, and it, there was only like, I don't remember the exact um, the exact numbers, but there was an abnormally low amount of Atlantic hurricane landfalls. And they've also, <laughs> they've also done this correlation with um, the strength of the hurricanes as, as based on damage, essentially, um, and that they're less, less costly during El Nino years. So I thought that was pretty interesting, too. So you got to remember we're a whole planet, right? So even though this warm water's out in the Pacific, it has a whole different meaning for the weather, and it's actually affecting the weather across the continents in the Atlantic. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So I don't... Did you have anything else that you wanted to cover on El Nino before... Before we go on to, uh, towards everybody's favorite segment of the show, that's right. Um, man, I feel like I learned so much about Inso, and it's so exciting, and it makes me happy that I got a meteorology degree, but also happy that that's not what I do every day. Because, as we said, we just talked a lot about what it is and when it's happened and what it means, but we didn't talk at all about how it forms because we still don't know. That sounds a lot like geology. <laughs> hey, it's not an exact science. Okay? <laughs> just, just do the fun paper, John. That's what everybody's waiting for. <laughs> all right, all right. So everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. We promised you Yay. a Halloween-themed paper, and this one is Halloween-themed on multiple levels of its actual topic and its goriness. This paper is so gross. <laughs> like, it made me think of, I don't, I don't know what kind of mood you're in when you found this. <laughs> so the paper is called The Safety of Pumpkin Carving Tools. And it's in preventative medicine. Uh, we're looking at this by um, Marcus et al., 2004. And it turns out this is exactly what it sounds like talking about people (laughs) cutting, stabbing, otherwise lacerating, or injuring their hands while carving pumpkins. Oh, yeah, it's really gross. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You should definitely at least read the abstract of this article because it actually lays out the entire article for you in the abstract in the best way I've ever seen. It's only like 12 lines, and it says, background methods, results, conclusion. (laughs) Yeah, this is a great (laughs) format that... You can get a really quick idea of, because several papers I've been reading recently, uh, you read the paper and you're like, that really doesn't address the title at all. And if they had an abstract that was laid out like this, you could catch that. Uh, But the basic idea here was, you know, everybody sees these pumpkin carving kits in Walmart or Target or whatever big box store you end up going to. Uh, Are they actually safer than running into the kitchen grabbing your good kitchen knives and hacking away at the pumpkin, do you really need to spend $10 on these little plastic handled saw things that will break at some point very soon? 
Right. Um, and, you know, me having a kid that's close to the age of, well, no, he's definitely the age where he wants to do it himself now. <laughs> Um, it was actually a, a really interesting, and I thought it was actually quite a useful paper, too. Um, but it was terrifying, and I'm terrified to carve my pumpkins now. But, uh, yeah, because they used cadavers and all these different carving implements, including, you know, your pointy kitchen knife or your serrated kitchen knife, um, to find out what was the safest of all these things to use. Yeah, so figure one of the paper looks like something from CSI. You've got four oh, knives and a ruler, or some, maybe something you would see in court evidence, uh, showing you the different <laughs> things they're going to try. So there are two special pumpkin carving knives, uh, the pumpkin master's saw, which is actually what I use, and the uh, pumpkin cutter, <laughs> K-U-T-T-E-R. Uh Obviously. Right, and then there are two generic, you know, Target brand kitchen knives that they use, and then things take a turn for the more gruesome side as they take six cadaver arms and proceed to lacerate and puncture the hands and fingers with these oh. knives. Oh yeah, so I didn't even think about that. There would be an uptick in hand injuries during this time of year. But obviously there is because they used that data, like where people get stabbed <laughs> during this time of year. They used that to set up their experimental section. I'm, we're not going to go into the anatomy of exactly where they're, where they're puncturing, but they're puncturing very specific spots on the hand. So if you were to hold the pumpkin on the other side with your hand and then stab it accidentally with one of these tools, which you can't really do with the little saws, but if you had a big kitchen knife, you could. And then also, like, if your hand slipped off the knife because you've got pumpkin guts on it, how that laceration would look. And they were very specific about how they were cutting these cadaver hands because that would change, you know, the difference in was it serious or not. Yeah, and they actually use an MTS testing machine, so a servo-controlled testing machine that's pretty much what I use doing fault friction studies where you can very precisely <laughs> control the displacement rate and measure the load. Uh, along with some other things like some six-axis load cells where they were actually sawing with the knives and measuring the forces. Uh, but they strapped these cadaver arms into the machine uh, with the different knives and measured the puncture force or the damage from the knife sliding across the feet of the fingertips or the palm. Okay. And they had someone that did not see which knife did what examine all of the cuts and classify whether they would have needed stitches or whatnot. Uh, one of the really fascinating things that I never even thought about was the cadaver hand is obviously limp because it's not attached to a body anymore that's functioning and has muscles that are doing things. Uh, so they actually have to tension the tendons with clamps to a certain force yeah so that the fingers don't just flop away from the knife. So they talk about all that. Uh, there is a figure, uh, figure two, that shows it. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's... Uh, it's gross. Yeah, don't look at that one with dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Or if you're even remotely queasy, don't do it, because it shows that force being applied. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I didn't even think about... Um, you already mentioned this, but this is the paragraph under that figure. I didn't even think about having, you know, a blind, um, 
tester dissect it to say how bad the injuries were. So that was kind of a neat, you know, they covered all their bases in this, you know, that person didn't know what was doing it, just how bad it, they just judged how bad it was. So that was kind of neat. Yeah. And so the conclusion turns out that the pumpkin cutting knives are safer. And that's, I guess, not a huge surprise, but they, yeah. they go on to say, you know, that we have all of these Halloween safety public service announcements out there, right, that are about uh, candy or traffic safety, all that. Well, maybe we should be talking a little bit more about pumpkin carving safety because they see a massive amount of these injuries uh, that they're starting to call pumpkin carver's palm or pumpkin carver's tendon injuries. Yeah in the emergency room every year it's like that's crazy i didn't realize that that would be that big a thing um i think in the interest of not public safety but in you know a sort of buyer's guide they do say that the pumpkin cutter k-u-t-t-e-r required significantly greater force to puncture the pumpkins than the pumpkin master knife so i'm glad i chose correctly yes uh me too and <laughs> <laughs> and I've used the the Pumpkin Master set for uh, several years. Actually, I've had a couple sets of them, and they do a really good job. Though I haven't got my pumpkin carved yet, and um, it's it's really close. Last year, I did the Mac Lantern and the Op Amp Pumpkin. Those uh, <laughs> negative feedback, but I uh, oh. haven't figured out what I'm going to do this year. Oh, my son used the pumpkin cutter, or not the pumpkin cutter, sorry, the pumpkin master cutters last year, Um, and he made one, so he's actually picked out in the book, he's going to do this haunted house, which I think means me or dad is going to do a haunted house, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, we got it all laid out, we're super excited, tomorrow night's the night for us, Um, because it's warm here, so we don't want them to stay out at night and just rot before Halloween. Right. And, you know, if you're doing some wonderful pumpkin design, you should tweet it to us or send it in to us. We'd love to share it with everybody, especially if it's a Don't Panic Geocast pumpkin. There's an idea for somebody. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one of our four listeners will do it. Come on, Mark. You can yeah. Do it. <laughs> but if you have any feedback at all, we love hearing from you, as you can tell. Uh, if you have fun papers, anything like that, or if you want to go on iTunes and leave a review, that helps other people find the show, and we really appreciate it. It'll just take a couple of minutes and uh, helps other people find the show and lets us know how we're doing and what you enjoy. So if you have anything to get to us, how can they do that, Shannon? Well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can visit our website to see pictures that other people have sent in, don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And don't forget to come by and see me at GSA this weekend in Baltimore. Um, our show poster is going to be on Sunday. Um, we're in session number 35, uh, T70, Digital Technology and Real and Virtual Geoscience Experiences. So we are poster booth number 173. So if you're out in Baltimore at GSA, come by poster 173. Show me a picture of the pumpkin you carved. I'll be out there on Halloween. So uh, yeah, come by and talk to us. Yep, we look forward to hearing from you. And we'll be back next week. Until then, remember, don't panic. 
not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.